thing I didn't mention is that uh, January 22nd today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's on the anniversary, the Sunday of the anniversary of the closest day to Roe versus Wade, which you know uh, legalized abortion. And uh, we have lived in this country for many, many years now with that uh, blight upon us. And it certainly for me is a, a real testimony of God's mercy upon this land uh, for whenever a culture sacrifices its own children, its unborn, uh, there is great opportunity for judgment as uh, God did in the Old Testament specifically. But uh, as you think about this week, even though uh, this is not a sanctity of human life message, I found it interesting that uh, we are coming to a portion of Scripture today which is, has an emphasis on mothers and on sons, and uh, there's going to be spiritual truth that we're going to gain from that. And I just found it interesting how God intersects sometimes some things that uh, makes me proclaim, yes, there is a God. <laughs> he is in control. And uh, so this morning we'll be looking at uh, fathers and, or mothers and sons and asking the question, who's your mama, uh, spiritually speaking? And we're going to be asking that this morning. But uh, continue to pray for our country and the uh, Supreme Court as uh, it continues to be formed, as we will see in the days ahead. And uh, lots of opportunities to pray for our country and for the peace for the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ here in North America and around the world. Uh, I was reading an article by Mary Hickey. She's a writer. She's a writer for Christian Reader. And she was uh, conveying an experience in her own life when she was expecting her first child. Uh, she was large with child, she said, and her next-door neighbor, a little six-year-old girl, came over. And this particular little girl was very curious about this whole process of birthing a new baby and uh, getting ready for it. And so she wanted to see the nursery and the nursery furniture and uh, went over all the names that uh, this, uh, Mary Hickey and her husband had talked about giving to this new baby. And then finally, this little six-year-old, out of curiosity, asked her, uh, where is this baby? And, of course, it was very evident where this baby was. And uh, Mary writes that she said that she'd been doing show and tell for about four months by this time. Uh, but the six-year-old uh, asked this question of Mary. She said, how did the baby get in there? How did it get in there? And uh, Mary, with great wisdom, said, I think you need to ask your mother about that. And the little girl confessed. She said, oh, I tried that, but nobody in my family knows. <laughs> you know, it is certainly appropriate at the proper time uh, for young people to know about uh, the biological facts of physical birth. And uh, as we grow older, we start to understand those things. Uh, but really, it's more important for followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to know the facts about our spiritual birth, our spiritual birth. It's important because it determines our viewpoint of our spiritual birth, determines how we live out our lives, whether it is in freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ or bondage to some set of rules and regulations. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn in your copy of God's Word to that passage Bill read for us, Galatians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at uh, verses 21 through 31. If you remember the broad outline of the book of Galatians, remember the first two chapters, he is defending his apostleship. Uh, the church at Galatia has been infiltrated by many false teachers. Uh, they are called Judaizers because they came from the Jewish faith, and they are trying to overlay a Jewish understanding of the Mosaic law upon 
the new believers there in Galatia, which is in Asia Minor. The Apostle Paul is combating this false teaching that is infiltrating the church that, yes, it's good to believe in Jesus for eternal life, but you must be circumcised. You must adhere to the Mosaic law and everything that goes along with that. And so the Apostle Paul, his apostleship is being attacked, and uh, he's responding to that in chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians. In chapters 3 and 4, he is into the very fact of the doctrinal argument for salvation by faith through grace alone. Uh, We see that in chapter 3, he vindicates that our being declared righteous is based upon faith, technically upon grace through faith, because the only righteousness that a believer in Jesus Christ has is the righteousness that is imputed or put to his account by Christ alone because of his death, burial, and resurrection. We call that justification, being declared righteous. In chapter 4, as we've seen, he's been illustrating that. He started out talking about, would you rather be a son or would you rather be a slave? He takes a, a brief parenthetical point in the middle of this chapter to talk about his pastoral concern and care for these Galatian believers. And now he's going to use, illustrate this idea of justification of faith illustrated with Sarah and Hagar, two mothers and their sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And so we will be looking at that here in a moment. (coughs) Uh, When we look at God's word, one of the challenges of interpreting God's word accurately is to allow the word of God to speak to us and to allow the word of God Uh, to the best of our ability and through the power of the Holy Spirit to interpret it as the way God, the original uh, author of Scripture, as he would convey it. What was his intended intended meaning to the original audience? Now, here in the 21st century, sometimes we have difficulty with that because it's like standing on the other side of a bridge and we are looking at the Apostle Paul's back and he's speaking to the Galatians and we cannot hear what the Galatians are saying. So we have to, through the study of God's word, through the science of interpretation, we get an understanding of what's going on. The Apostle Paul, in his argumentation in this book, is telling us that there are false teachers who have infiltrated the church and the Galatians are caving in to this false teaching. We call it legalism, uh, a focus on legalism. Warren Wiersbe has uh, said this about legalism. It doesn't mean the setting of spiritual standards. We need to get very clear on that. It does, legalism is not the setting of spiritual standards. It means worshiping these standards and thinking that we are spiritual because we obey them. It also means judging other believers on the basis of these standards. The Pharisees had high standards in Jesus' days, and yet they crucified the Messiah, unquote, from Warren Wiersbe. And so this morning, we are going to look at this portion, this illustration from the Old Testament where the Apostle Paul is uh, illustrating what it means to be declared righteous by faith, not by our works. The question is, is are we saved by believing or are we saved by achieving? Are we saved by our own works performance or are we saved by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the ultimate question. And of course, the false teachers would say, yeah, Jesus is good, but we need to do these things in order to be fully saved and acceptable before God. 
And so there's something appealing in our flesh. I need to remind you again that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, you are redeemed, you are heaven-bound, but remember, this flesh we live in is not redeemed yet. And so there's this battle going on between the spirit who indwells us and our fleshly appetites and desires. And there's something comforting in our flesh about a Christianity, about a faith system, which has a list of do's and don'ts that we adhere to. Whether our list comes from mindless fundamentalism or mindless liberalism, you always know where you stand. And that is appealing to our flesh because I want to know on a list of do's and don'ts, how am I doing in this thing we call the Christian life? And so it prevents us from making the hard choices and thinking deep thoughts about what and who Jesus Christ is. And with a list of do's and don'ts, we don't really have to personally relate to a demanding and loving God. And that is one of the fallacies of legalism of this false teaching the Apostle Paul was combating here in the book of Galatians. As we come to verse 21, I love the end of verse 20 uh, where he says, I am perplexed about you. Uh, You know, I try not to say that I ever get worried or upset uh, about other people. I like to say, like the Apostle Paul says, I'm just perplexed. Why are you doing what you're doing? You know, and I get perplexed about myself too. But the Apostle Paul is perplexed about them. He's been building this argument. He's asking him, what is going on with you here? And he asks a question in verse 21. Tell me then, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? That is a question for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. One we need to go back to and ask ourselves. They were trying to adopt the Mosaic Law, which was given to the nation Israel in in the Old Covenant from Mount Sinai and not given to the church, and they're trying to adopt it. But it's been shown that, uh, you know, the Mosaic Law had three component parts. There was the civil part of the Mosaic Law, there was the ceremonial part, and there was the moral part, which we, we call the Ten Commandments. And those parts are indivisible. And yet even to this day, there are people who believe that the moral law is given to the church when in reality it was given to the nation Israel. And so the Apostle Paul is combating that. He of all people should know it, having been a Pharisee and having been a man who was educated in the law. He's saying, you do not understand the law. And he's repeating this from chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by these things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 12, However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He's already argued the fact that if you live by the law, you better keep every jot and tittle, every parenthesis, every little Uh, punctuation mark of the law. If you violate one part of it, you're condemned. It condemns you. In fact, uh, Dwight L. Moody, the great preacher from the 1800s, said, the law only tells me how crooked I am. The law only tells me how crooked I am, 
Grace comes along and straightens me out. You know, when you think of a plumb bob, in fact, I just ran across, I was looking in my toolbox for something else, and I found my dad's plumb blob, plumb blob. It is kind of a blob, but a plumb bob on a string which you hold up to see if the wall is straight. And you can hold it up all day, and if the wall is crooked, the plumb bob is not going to fix it, is it? No. It takes something else to fix a crooked wall, and that's what Moody is saying. So he's asking this question, the Apostle Paul is, uh, why do you listen to the law? Why do you put yourself in that bondage? In verses 22 and 23, we need to remember the history, where we're going to remember the history, reflect on the spiritual argument, and then retain the spiritual truth in this passage. But he wants us to remember the history, and he dives back into the Old Testament. He has already mentioned Abraham in uh, chapter 3. Remember, Abraham was saved by faith. It was counted to him as righteousness. In fact, he came along before the law of Moses at Mount Sinai was ever given. And so Abraham was saved by faith through grace, not by adhering to any law. In verse 22, follow along here with me. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son of the free woman through the promise. <clears throat> so Abraham had these two sons. And we, if we had lots of time, we could go back to Genesis chapter 12 through 21, and again in 26 of Genesis, and we'd get the full accounting historically of what had happened. But we need to trace Abraham's experience to understand what is going on here, looking at the history very briefly here. And if we look at his age, uh, we can trace by his age what was going on in his life and what God was doing since he had chosen Abraham to be the father of his people. He was a man of faith. At age 75... Now, I want you to, that to sink in, because I think for most of us, when we hit 75, we think, oh, man, if, you know, if we're blessed to get that far, it's like, I'm done. You know, I'm just going to go and uh, play golf or whatever. And uh, at age 75, Abraham was called by God to go to Canaan. Uh, God promised land, seed, and a blessing. That's found in Genesis 12. His wife, Sarah, was barren. They had not been able to have any children. And uh, God was waiting until both of them, as Paul said in Romans chapter 4, were as good as dead. In other words, if they had a child, it would be absolutely miraculous. And he was going to send them a son. God promised them. When Abraham was 85 years old, the promised son had not arrived yet. Sarah was, had uh, Abraham uh, take her slave Hagar, if you remember the story, to be his wife in order to have a son in Genesis 16. Abraham and Sarah basically took things into their own hands and said, yeah, God, we believe you. We're going to have a son, but we're going to do it. We're going to do this. And I think all of us can identify with the fact of God has a plan for us, and it is hard to walk by faith. At age 86, Hagar is pregnant. Sarah gets jealous. Sarah throws her out of the house, but the Lord intervenes and sends Hagar back. Her son is born, and Abraham calls him Ishmael, okay? In Genesis 16, 4 through 16, he would become the father of the Arab nations. At age 99, God again speaks to Abraham and Sarah and promises again to send them a son who will be named Isaac in Genesis 17 and 18. Imagine that. You're 99 years old. You haven't had children of your own with your wife. And he says, you're going to have a son. Yeah, right. And age 100, the promised son is born in Genesis chapter 21. Uh, it creates fric friction in the home 
you know, because Ishmael, who is now 14, has a rival. He is the, has been the only son, has enjoyed that position, and now there is the true son. At age 103, Isaac is weaned, and a celebration takes place. At the feast, Ishmael begins to mock Isaac in Genesis 21, 8 and following, and it creates great trouble in the home. And there's only one solution. Hagar and Ishmael have to go. And that's what the Lord tells Abraham to do, cast her out in Genesis 21, chapter 9. And so that is the two sons, the background at Abraham's age, the historical position of the sons. Ishmael was born of the flesh. It wasn't a God thing. It was simply a biological event that occurred that was out of God's will. uh, And he was born a slave. At that time, there was a document called the Code of Hammurabi in the Middle East, and it governed everything that people did day by day. And in that document, it said, if you were born of a slave, you would always be a slave. And so Ishmael was born of a slave. He would be a slave. Isaac was born of a promise. The promise, of course, was God's continual telling of Abraham and Sarah, I will give you a son. You will be a great nation. The Abrahamic covenant covenant back in Genesis 12 promised land, seed, and a blessing. The blessing is that from Abraham's seed, this multitude, this nation that he couldn't see yet, would come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so that's remembering the history. Paul begins with these two sons to illustrate our two births, the physical birth. I look around, it looks like each one of you was born physically. You're breathing, and, uh, you know, we were all born. So that's the physical birth that makes us sinners. We were born as sinners. You know, it's called, excuse me, uh, total depravity, the Bible teaches us. But then there's that spiritual birth that makes us children of God. For me, I was 28 years old before I was spiritually born. Born again, we would say. And for some of you, you were maybe four or five. Others of you, it may have been later, like myself. But now we understand the history of Paul's argument. And then we need to reflect on this spiritual argument. The Apostle Paul is building a case. He's using the illustration of Sarah and Hagar and their sons, uh, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. And so we need to reflect upon this. And he begins in verse 24. This is allegorically speaking allegorically speaking. The word there, uh, and you probably know what an allegory is, good examples of an allegory are Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It's a Christian allegory. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis is another Christian allegory. And here the Apostle Paul is using this historical event and drawing deeper meaning out of it. Uh, Here uh, the Apostle Paul does not deny the historical truth of the narrative, but by God's spirit superimposes a secondary meaning. Uh, This is really, even though the word that's used here is translated allegory, it's probably more of a typology in Scripture. Now, don't go to sleep on me here, uh, but there are types in the Old Testament, and this is an allegory, but it's more of a typology. The difference is an allegory uh, takes concrete matters mentioned in Scripture and uh, digs out underlying deeper truths. Now, this gets really dangerous. The only reason that we can allegorize is if the Scripture gives us permission, and here uh, Paul is giving us permission because God is leading him into writing this. A typology, it means persons, events, and traditions of Scripture 
are prototypes of present person events and traditions. And it, it is a demonstration of God's fulfillment in salvation history. And that's more of what Paul is doing here is more of a typology, even though, even though the word allegory is used. But on your bulletin insert, I've given you a little chart on the back there of Paul's allegory or typology. And uh, there's legalistic religion on one column and authentic Christianity on the next column. And you can see the contrasts. There's law and grace. Hagar the slave represents the old covenant given at Mount Sinai, in other words, the Mosaic law. Sarah the free woman represents the new covenant given at Calvary through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ishmael, a natural birth that represents Judaism centered in earthly Jerusalem, as we will see. Isaac, a supernatural birth, represents all who are part of Christ through faith centered in the heavenly Jerusalem. And the one leads to bondage, the legalistic religion. The other, authentic Christianity, gives us liberty. Uh, just let me say this. There's also, uh, I've added a, uh, the statement from our overseer affirmation of faith or elder affirmation of faith, which is in our Constitution and bylaws, of our approach to Scripture. It's called the hermeneutic. When I first heard that word, I thought it was something that you had to have surgically removed. But it simply means it's the technical term for uh, our approach to Scripture and interpreting Scripture. And we strive, and, uh, and every evangelical Christian I've met strives to be consistent and uh, precise in how they interpret God's Word. Now, this may come as a shock to some of you, but not all Christians interpret God's Word the same because they do not approach it with the same method. This is a normal, literal, grammatical, historical, systematic method of interpreting God's Word. Now, no one is 100% precise or 100% consistent, and that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us to draw out from God's Word. It's called exegesis, not reading into it, but to draw out of it what God wants us to know, what was his original intent in writing to the original readers. And so the Apostle Paul here is using this historical event, and it doesn't give us freedom to go into the Old Testament and start allegorizing all of these stories in the Old Testament or elsewhere in Scripture. St. Augustine, Augustine, that was his approach. He's a monolithic figure in Christian history, and yet he used the allegorical method, which basically means that there's a hidden meaning under everything. What you read it, it, on, the, on the text is not really what God intended. It's hidden underneath there, and only I can find it out. And that's not an appropriate method of Bible interpretation. And so it's still with us today, and there are many strains of Christianity which use that method and other methods which are not, as what I, from my position, as consistent or precise as we need to be with the Word of God. And so in this passage... As we reflect on the spiritual argument, Isaac illustrates the believer in several ways. Sarah's son Isaac, the one who is uh, the promised one, born of a promise, it was a miracle that he was even born. He was born by God's power, born after the Spirit in verse 29. The believer is born by the Holy Spirit, John 3, verses 1 through 7. Isaac came into the world through Abraham, who represents faith, and Sarah, who represents grace. So every believer born by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 
He brought joy to his elderly parents. In fact, the name Isaac means laughter. He brought joy, and surely he brought joy to those around him. Salvation is an experience of joy for the Christian and for the people around them. He grew and he was weaned. Salvation is simply the beginning of our faith, not the end of it. We are born and we must grow. That's why we talk about justification, uh, uh, sanctification, and ultimately we go to heaven and we are glorified. As long as we grasp the toys of infancy, we cannot lay a hold of the tools of the mature believer. A child does not enjoy being weaned, but if he or she cannot become mature, it will not become mature until that happens. And also Isaac was persecuted, and that's a model of the Christian faith. Ishmael caused problems for Isaac just as our sin nature causes problems for us. We'll see that in chapter 5. Ishmael created no problems in the home until Isaac was born. Just as our old nature, our fleshly nature, does not create problems until we are born again. We are born in Christ. In Abraham's home, we see the same basic conflicts that we see in Christians today in our own personal lives. Hagar versus Sarah equals law versus grace. Ishmael versus Isaac, flesh versus the spirit. And uh, the Apostle Paul explains the significance of these two sons. And now he moves to their mothers. He's contrasting law and grace. Why does he go, when you think about it, why does he go to an Old Testament account about Abraham and these two mothers, Hagar and Sarah and the two boys? Because remember, Galatia is a Gentile community. But remember who were his opponents, these false teachers from Jerusalem, these Judaizers, these ones bringing in the Jewish law. They were using the Old Testament to prove their point, and the Apostle Paul is responding to them in kind. He's demonstrating through the Old Testament that they are wrong, and he's using the Old Testament. So the Galatian believers who perhaps did not have very much of a background in the Old Testament and Jewish history are getting an education here, but it's really to combat these Jewish false teachers that have come in. And so the mothers of the sons represent two two differing promises. There's some facts about Hagar we need to emphasize here that the law has no longer has any power over the Christian. First of all, Hagar was Abraham's second wife. God began with Sarah. He did not begin with Hagar the slave. God's grace pervades his plan. When you think of all of what God does through the Old Testament, God delivered Israel out of Egypt, and it was on the basis of his grace. It's always on his grace. Like Hagar, the law was added to perform a temporary function, and then moved off the scene. Remember I said it was given to Israel at Mount Sinai, all three components of the law, the the civil, ceremonial, and moral aspects. Hagar was a slave. Secondly, five times here she's called a bondwoman in this passage. Sarah was the free woman and therefore had the position of liberty, but Hagar, even though married to Abe, Abraham was a servant and a slave, nothing more. The law, like Hagar, was given as a servant, a mirror, and a monitor of men's sins, but never a mother. And the Apostle Paul is really perplexed why these people would want to go back to the slave mother of the law. Hagar was not meant to bear a child. Abraham's marriage to Hagar was out of God's will. It was the result of Abraham and Sarah's unbelief and impatience with God. Hagar was trying to do only what Sarah could do, and it failed. And that's like I said, with the plumb bob 
uh, checking out a crooked wall. It doesn't heal it. The law cannot give life, Galatians 3.21. The law cannot give righteousness, Galatians 2.21. The law cannot give the gift of the Spirit, chapter 3, verse 2. The law cannot give us spiritual inheritance, chapter 3, verse 18. No matter and no amount of legislation or religion will give a dead sinner life. God is very clear about that. Only Christ can do that through the gospel. Hagar gives birth to a slave. Whoever chooses Hagar for their mother is choosing bondage because she represents the law. Hagar was cast out. Sarah gave the order. Impossible for law and grace to coexist. The break is permanent. And finally, Hagar was not married again. God never gave the law to another nation of people, including his church. For Judaizers, these false teachers, to try to impose the law on the Galatian believers was to oppose God's plan. To try and unite the law with grace was to not deny what Jesus Christ did on Mount Calvary through his death, burial, and resurrection. But instead of a blessing, they got trouble. Hagar began to despise Sarah, and Sarah got angry, and their home was thrown into a turmoil, which still continues to this day. You know, the Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Arab-Israeli conflict, that is based here. And until politicians understand that, there is no quick fix short of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, like Abraham and Sarah, when we try to fix God's plan for him through human efforts, it only makes a mess of things. Um, I remember seeing a sign in an auto repair shop one time, and it said, uh, labor, $50 per hour. If you watch, $60 per hour. If you help, $75 per hour. If you worked on your car first and then brought it into us, $100 per hour. You know, and that's uh, when an amateur tries to help a professional, it only makes things worse. So it is when we try to help God out, when we seek to secure his promised blessings through our own human efforts, we don't get blessed, we get trouble. In verses 26 through 27, the mother of Isaac represents spiritual blessing. Look at verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written. Rejoice, barren woman, who did Isaiah 54.1 is quoted there. And so the mother of Isaac represents spiritual freedom, that spiritual Jerusalem. So how do we retain this, uh, this allegory, this typology of this historical event which has new spiritual meaning? How do we retain it? Uh, the law and the old nature, Hagar and Ishmael, want to persecute us and bring us back into bondage. How do we solve this problem? And we are tempted, and our flesh, believe me, is tempted to put some kind of a physical measurement on how well we're doing in the spiritual life. It's very subtle, but yet it's very dangerous. First of all, in verse 28 and 29, remember your spiritual position. Look at verse 28. And you, brethren, here he's, he is addressing the Galatian believers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at the, that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. And so remember your spiritual position. Christians are like Isaac, children of promise. You have been miraculously born again. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful consequence to the condition of belief. 
no strings attached. It doesn't add circumcision, doesn't add uh, uh, adhering to all the ceremonial and, and civil laws of Israel. First Peter 1.23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and an abiding word of God. Another statement of the miraculous conversion of people who become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, we can expect persecution. We should not be surprised by that. Uh, Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael. Persecution has been throughout Christian history, continues to this day. The legalist hates the free gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. This church is what we call a free grace church. It's not a lordship salvation church. We believe in the security of the believer, and yet we are criticized because of our belief. But I believe the Bible rings very clear about that. Over 150 times in the New Testament, the requirements for uh, eternal life in Jesus Christ are simply belief with nothing else added. The weight of Scripture is salvation by grace through faith. The great reformer Martin Luther realized that, who had been a former Roman Catholic priest. When he read Galatians, it changed his life and many others since then. And then verses 30 and 31, remember who your mother is. Remember your spiritual lineage. Look at verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of a free woman. Comes from Genesis 21, verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. God's plan for the church is salvation by grace through faith. Not the law, not the flesh, not good works. Those things, the good works come later after we believe in Christ for our salvation. Several years ago, if you want to illustrate the, the danger of the law appealing to our flesh, several years ago, our family, when I was young, traveled from Denver, Colorado, down to Arizona. We went to the Grand Canyon, and then we went to uh, the Painted Hills, and we went to uh, <clears throat> the uh, Petrified Forest National Park. And I remember there was a sign there along the trails, and it said these words, Your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft losses of petrified wood of 14 tons a year, mostly one small piece at a time. Uh, it was a clear warning. In fact, my dad emphasized it because I, I, I thought, oh, one little piece of petrified wood, nobody will notice. But my dad emphasized, no, did you see that sign? If everybody picks them up, it would all disappear. It was a clear warning not to pick up any pieces of petrified wood we might find. Uh, did the signs resolve the problem? Well, that's a question that a researcher named Robert Cialdini and an expert on the theory of persuasion wanted to know. So he and his colleagues ran an experiment on how that worked there. They seeded various trails throughout the forest with loose pieces of petrified wood ready for the stealing to anybody who wanted them. On some trails, they posted a sign warning people not to steal the petrified wood. And on other trails, they didn't put any signs up. The result, the trails that had the warning sign had nearly three times more theft than the trails that didn't have signs. <laughs> Says something about the human condition, doesn't it? Uh, the researchers concluded that the park's warning sign designed to send a moral message sent a different message as well, something like, quote, wow, the petrified wood is going fast. I'd better get mine now. Or, 
14 tons a year, surely it won't matter if I take a few pieces. Uh, you cannot better your life through the rules and resolutions that you will make. The law does not lead to greater blessing. It only makes matters worse. There's a better way to relate to God, and that's through the covenant of promise, through the Lord Jesus Christ, represented for us here by Isaac and by Sarah. God has promised to bless us unconditionally. We don't have to work for those blessings. We believe God for his blessings. Galatians 4.26, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, of heavenly Jerusalem, which is free. Heavenly Father, thank you for today, and we thank you for the blessing of the fact that salvation by grace through faith is free. It is not cheap. 